Welcome to the Journal.ie's The Explainer, where every week we take a deep dive into a different news story. I'm Sinead O'Carroll, and this week, what are the British doing to battle COVID-19? And again, we are all recording from our respective homes on kitchen tables and in dining rooms and living rooms across the country. So this question is one that we've probably asked a lot since 2016. What are the Brits at? Because when Ireland and other European countries were watching on in horror as Italy was devastated by the coronavirus, we began making preparations for when it would inevitably arrive on our shores. But it seemed the UK was an outlier for a long time. We were hearing theories about herd immunity and life continued as normal long after other countries, including Ireland, had taken major steps like closing schools, asking companies to work from home where possible. But things changed drastically in the UK in the course of 10 days, and now there are much, much stricter restrictions in place, with Boris Johnson issuing a stay-at-home order from 10 Downing Street in a dramatic speech. So what exactly are those restrictions? Are we now in step with each other? To catch us up, I'm going to be joined today from, again, our respective homes, the journal.ie's Gwaronyn E.A., who has spent much of her journalistic career asking what the Brits are at, or Brexit, Kathleen McNamee, an ESPN journalist living in London, and Professor Sam McConkie, an infectious disease specialist at the Royal College of Surgeons in Ireland. Thank you all for joining me. And Gwaronyn, I'm going to start with you to get a rundown of the latest from the UK. What exactly has the timeline of restrictions been there? It may seem a long while ago that we were talking about Cheltenham and how that was going ahead. And now suddenly we're a very different situation now. Cheltenham took place between the 10th and 13th of March. So if we take that as a kind of a a starting uh, base, people were being told to self-isolate if they had symptoms, which was a a cough and a fever, and to self-isolate for seven days, which, you know, received criticism in itself for being different from the WHO advice being half the time frame uh, that they recommended elsewhere. Um, and then after that, you know, they started saying, you know, kids in, in, in schools, if they started to have symptoms, they were to be sent home, these kind of slightly more extreme maybe measures. And then they obviously cancelled St. Patrick's Day with the rest, but they were very late doing that. It was it was kind of a couple of days beforehand. And I think it was Saturday before the Tuesday of St. Patrick's Day, and it was all going ahead as planned. Um, until a decision was made last minute. Uh, Around the 20th of March, there was a slight ramp up in cases and Boris Johnson made a first of, the first maybe significant announcement that pubs and restaurants would close. And that was, and then we're kind of, that led us up to the the very dramatic uh, moment where he gave the statement where he said, you must stay at home. Much more extreme than the UK had been approaching it up till then. But, surely in, in response to how the hospital seemed to become overwhelmed very quickly. There was talk about certain areas in the UK being deserts or, or black spots for, for hospital care. So those people in those communities uh, may be left in the lurch a bit. And very quickly, there was there seemed to be a ramp up uh, in, in the cases. Yeah. So what are we talking number wise? We're, we're all a little obsessive over over the numbers at the moment as we're being asked to you know flatten that curve so it's it's kind of all of our responsibility to know what's out there what what numbers are we talking about when we're looking at the UK so the UK has 8200 cases as of Wednesday afternoon and 433 deaths that all these figures have a massive context to them and can't be read in isolation I think that the, the most important thing about the UK is the number of people that they're not testing. You know, in Ireland, for example, when you compare it to here, we were testing people from 
very early on and the UK were very adamant that they wouldn't test people unless they needed hospitalization. Because of that, there's a kind of a, a lower uh, tier of mild symptomatic people that probably won't be registered at all for having had, had the virus. Um, and that has to be remembered when, when you're comparing that number of cases. What hospital systems and what governments are looking at isn't the number of cases, it's the number of people who are admitted to ICU because that's where their limited capacity is and the number of people who die because they're the big numbers. They're the things that, they're obviously the two of them are linked, but that'll be the, the marker of how successful a country is at, at managing this or not. As you said, Boris Johnson gave that dramatic speech um, the other night from Downing Street. What has the situation been like since then? Has it changed dramatically? Have we seen empty streets, empty roads? Um, or is it taking a little bit longer because they went from A to Z so quickly? That's a good point about the A, A to Z so quickly because one of the one of the things that we spoke about w- was communication. Uh, you know, spoke about to a couple of people was communication in terms of knowing why these measures are in place. It's not just good enough to have to have them in place. It's the message that you send to people and keeping Cheltenham running and um, telling people that you know, they could still out, but 70-year-olds maybe had to stay in because that was another thing that was announced, the, conco- the cocooning, that everybody else was kind of fine. That does give a message that younger people will be safe and the older ones aren't. And we've that is a dangerous message to send out to people, not only because young people can spread it to the vulnerable, but because young people can, you know, in exceptional um, circumstances can die from it as well. So Ever since Boris Johnson gave that speech, there has been a sense of things are getting serious now, but we still saw people, images of people on tube stations going to work. There was also uh, some reports of employers who were asking employees to come into work as well. So there will be a tr- uh, kind of a, a trickle down effect, if you want, fr- from Boris Johnson's speech so that it may take a while for people to figure out a new routine and to iron out those kind of kinks. But that's not unique to the UK. Every single country has kind of had to deal with that. But the unique part of the UK is that maybe they haven't taken it as seriously as other countries have uh, before them. And also the UK has had more time to adapt than Italy or Spain had, for example, who were hit kind of, who were blindsided by the increased surge, whereas Ireland and the UK have seen that surge and have had time to prepare for it and have been able to kind of prepare their systems for it. But the UK, given that time, didn't seem to um, implement as strict measures as they could have to prepare slow. Has there been criticism of the UK for that? There has actually um, representative of the World Health Organization, the WHO, you know, they wouldn't really be free to criticize um, harshly, but they did say that it's not what, what the UK had been doing is not what they were recommending, which is kind of very delicate diplomatic lang- language of saying that they were kind of concerned about the UK's approach. Now, this was before the the announcement by Boris Johnson this week. So perhaps they're a little bit more uh, at ease about the approach. Um, they, they did say that as well, that we don't know really what what the best way to deal with this is yet because we're still fighting fires at the moment the analysis of what way is best to deal with it will be after 
when we're out of the pandemic essentially but the who also said we can only offer an issue guidance we can't um force countries to abide by it as you mentioned there was a there has been a divergence between how Ireland were dealing with this and how the UK were dealing with it. The UK press has been trying to uncover what exactly was happening behind the scenes in 10 Downing Street. As as you said, like the UK knew this was coming. They, they had seen the scenes in Italy. Um, what was going on? What was behind the policy decisions that were being taken by Boris Johnson and his government? There was a lot of murmurings. Brexit obviously made an appearance as it always does. There was talk about how they were concerned about the UK economy uh, in the context of this, you know, the the breakaway from the the EU, you know, was only months ago. And then on on top of this, they're dealing with a pandemic. So that by, by telling people you can still go out, you can still go to work, it's just the old people that have to stay in. There was a suggestion that perhaps that w- that was keeping the economy going, protecting the vulnerable as much as possible, but it's still letting the virus spread naturally, really, without do it, taking much measures to stop it. There was also, you know, Boris Johnson was in uh, taking prime minister's questions today, which seems a bit bizarre in the current climate, but they were all well spaced out in the in the usually packed House of Commons. And he was asked about, for example, self-employed people and how they were going to cope um, if they were being told to stay at home. You know, a couple of MPs said that people are really worried about being able to pay for their bills and support their families if they have the virus so they can't self-isolate. So people are going into work because the government hasn't supported them enough um, to stay at home. And Boris Johnson has said that the Chancellor will announce measures so that people feel they can self-isolate. But the problem is, you know, whereas the Irish government were very swift in kind of duly announcing economic measures with um, kind of public health measures so that the two kind of complemented each other, separating the two out like that, as the UK has done, it could also it could be too late basically by the time they announce these economic measures for workers to self isolate, and um, when they already have not only contracted it but spread it as well. But another kind of marker. Yeah, so granted, the UK's one is quite different to what we've seen in Ireland. Um, the government has guaranteed um, to cover wages from employers who agree to temporarily put people on leave. But as you said, that doesn't cover self-employed people or people who have been laid off. So that there's a gap there. Um, has that been obviously talked about widely? Yeah, um, it was interesting uh, it was actually brought up, Ireland was brought up as, a, as an example of the way things should be done in the House of Commons. Uh, the Scottish National Party's Ian Blackford asked Boris Johnson, you know, he knows of self-employed people who aren't able to either run their business properly or take the proper measures that are, he's being advised to because uh, there is no payment in place for um, self-employed people at the moment. And there are obviously barriers there for claiming um, unemployment benefit. So Boris Johnson said that there, they would, be, you know, these suite of measures would be looked at um, later in the week. But Ireland's payment of €350 Euro to those who become unemployed because of COVID-19 self-employed people are included in that. And that was something that's held up as a standard of you know why aren't we doing it in the UK was was kind of the the, the rhetoric by um, Ian Blackford. So it's interesting to see how the e- economics. You know we've obviously talked about this before that uh, people's health is closely linked to 
um, uh, the econom e economy in any country, but this is such a clear example of how you need economic supports there for people to abide by the advice that they are given properly. Gronny, just before I get to Sam and he'll explain the science behind this, but I want to ask you about the politics behind um, why we were hearing so much about herd immunity, a phrase that's kind of disappeared, but was very prevalent in the UK about three weeks ago. Well, there, there's a lot of talk about um, vaccinations to, t to protect the, the, the population. And really, you know, we can treat viruses, but vaccination is the best way to fight them. So I think there was a focus on this as a as a kind of explanation maybe for the UK's approach. The health minister in the UK, um, Matt Hancock, said that herd immunity was not their goal with the approach. Um, her, you know, to, that was not the strategy at all. They were doing the exact same thing as other countries, he argued, but they were doing it at a different level. His argument and Sir Patrick Vallance, the chief scientific um, advisor for the UK, among other um, representatives of the British government, said that their approach was basically the same as Ireland's, for example, but they were implementing it later because they're afraid that if they implement it too soon, and we heard this argument here, that it would pop up later after the, the lockdown or shutdown or whatever you want to call it was lifted. So um, separate to that, Boris Johnson seems to be kind of... Um, you know, as a political figure, this has really uh, caught him kind of off guard and he's playing catch up a little bit. I'm not sure that the UK government knew it would be as serious as it had been. We saw a, a massive growth in Italy and, and now we've seen it in Spain and it's really hit home. But that's only this week. Uh, and the herd immunity themed approach that was spoken about last week um, that seems to be kind of abandoned somewhat for more stringent measures now. So Sam, I'm going to bring you in here because we've just talked about herd immunity with Gronia. Can you explain what is meant when scientists say herd immunity and whether it does work or can work in situations? So in a, an example would be measles. If enough people have either had measles in a community or had the measles vaccine, once you get over about 95 or 96% of a population that have had measles or measles vaccine, then it no longer has enough susceptible individuals, the four or 5% that are susceptible aren't coming close enough together frequently enough to allow it sustained transmission in that group. So it essentially dies out of that population. So herd immunity definitely exists for many infectious diseases. I suppose the question now is, does it exist for COVID-19 and SARS-2? And we don't know that yet. We don't even know if individual immunity exists. For other coronaviruses, unfortunately, you get partial immunity and only temporary partial immunity. So it lasts partially for two or three years uh, but not not completely. So we don't have definite evidence that herd immunity for this new virus that causes COVID-19 exists. So it's more of, in my view, a speculative theory rather than a proven definitive sort of uh, conclusion at this stage. So on that, were you surprised when you heard it being brought up in the context of the UK, particularly when there is no vaccine yet? Yeah, I was, yeah. And not only surprised, I was actually shocked and disappointed because unfortunately, you know, we share the only land border with the UK, the border with the six counties and the 26 counties. And if they were to follow that sort of policy and allow it COVID-19 to go rampant in Northern Ireland, it would have completely jeopardised our efforts in the South to try and slow it down and spread it over a much longer period and try and control it through contact tracing and through social distancing. So to do, to do such two diametrically opposed policies on one small island of sort of six and a half million people wouldn't really work. 
So we we have we're we're more in line with each other now. Northern Ireland, Ireland, the, the UK, and Ireland. But it, they, they kind of went from zero to ninety in in the UK. Um, to a layperson like myself, that might look like they're trying to catch up. Is that possible? Yeah, I think when they um, there was modelling came out on the sixteenth of March from uh, Imperial College, a man called Niall Ferguson, who's one of the best mathematics modellers in fact season the world, and they pointed that the previous policy that the UK was following might lead to about half a million deaths in the UK over a very short period of time. That would overwhelm the health sector and probably other basic sectors as well. So after that model came out for, for what would happen in Britain, that created a lot of political pressure to try and do things differently. Other countries like Northern Italy, Lombardy obviously, has been really not just in health, but all areas of society, whether it's the economy or transport or, you know, basic services like water, electricity, food and internet are really struggling there because of the extent of death and illness that they're seeing due to COVID-19. So um, I think that led the UK to to change uh, their policy to one that's more trying to control it and spread it out and try and prevent spread of COVID-19. Are they too late or is it possible for them to, to do that from this point? Well, we, we don't know. In in China, different provinces have had different levels of lateness, if you like. The Wuhan, the city that was first hit, when they didn't know what they were hit by, uh, suffered tremendous devastation on a scale similar to London or Lombardy. And they have come back and apparently now are much, much better situation. Whereas the other provinces in China, because they could learn from what had happened in Wuhan, were able to react much earlier and certainly have suffered much less than they did in Wuhan. So I believe there's an awful lot to learn from watching the Chinese response, which in my view has been uh, amazingly effective and in some ways wonderfully so in that they they didn't know what was coming. They didn't have advanced warning that COVID-19 was going to come. They didn't have a diagnostic test already available when it arrived, whereas we in Ireland had and in Britain we had, we, we knew this was coming because it was obvious it would come uh, from, from other countries as people travel around the world. What is your take, given that we had all that knowledge, what is your take on the UK's approach thus far? I, I think um, they've, they've really come in line with the WHO advice, with the European Centre for Disease Control and with most other European countries and, and Ireland in, in trying to do social distancing and do uh, scaling up the health service and contact tracing and and, and testing. So I, I think they've really um, um, not not exactly copied. Uh, I, I do think, I mean, our government um, essentially cancelled St. Patrick's Day worldwide and our government also closed the pubs. So I think that caused a, a lot of stir in the US and UK when they all sort of realised, oh gosh, Ireland has actually cancelled St. Patrick's Day and closed all the pubs. When you just think about that, that's such a unexpected, amazing thing to happen. They sort of set up and said, oh, this must be an absolutely huge deal. And, you know, in retrospect, those were obviously good good decisions at the time. So I think they are um, now trying to really control it. Would that social and cultural context be brought into play when public health doctors are putting policies um, into play? Yeah, there's no point in, in sort of proposing something if only 20 or 30 percent of the population are going to follow it. You, n- you need fairly widespread adherence voluntarily uh, to, for, for these things to work. So whenever the public health doctors are recommending new policies, it has to be something that the vast majority of people are willing to go along with. Otherwise, there's no point in trying to sort of force. You can't force these things on people because they're too invasive. We need the voluntary cooperation of hundreds of thousands of people in this for it to work. One of the different paths the UK took before um, the, the full shutdown was announced was they had asked um, people, about 1.5 million people who would be considered vulnerable to COVID-19 to self-isolate themselves 
um, for 12 weeks. That was kind of a different approach. They hadn't asked the general population to do anything massively different yet, but they asked this group, um, which was different to what we had seen here. What would have been the thought process behind that? Is it a good process, a thought process? I, I think it is a, a good process. As I sort of said, you know, my, my mother is 87, you know, lives in a, in a small bungalow in a large field in rural Monaghan. And that, that's a very good place to be. And, you know, she's visitors from, from my brother mm-hmm. and some, but she's still relatively uh, secluded from a lot of social contact. So and I, I think many people who are uh, have chronic illnesses and maybe older chronic lung disease and heart disease are, are already doing that voluntarily. So many people in Ireland are, are doing exactly that. Uh, even though they haven't been so much singled out as a single group, but that that's a very reasonable um, thing to do to, to, for, for people who are particularly at risk of getting severe disease and maybe even dying, of, of, of um, being particularly careful about avoiding lots of social contact. Uh, so you shrink your social circle temporarily down to one or two people, just the key people you need to sort of keep life going, uh, rather than having hundreds of people in your social contact that you're touching every week. So uh, that's that's a reasonable policy for both UK and Ireland in my view and I think many people are already doing that. Is there um, just to go back to the timing of it given that the UK you know started cancelling things much later than we did um, started changing habits a lot um, further on than we did is there a, a time frame that countries should follow to ensure that as, as we're saying now that that curve is flattened? Yeah the time frame is partly mentioned on when people are sort of willing to voluntarily cooperate and go along with these things and unfortunately many of the population in Ireland and Britain weren't really watching Wuhan, weren't really watching the data from China with any degree of um, sort of detail and and hadn't fully realised that um, on about the second or third week of January of this year, the the Chinese uh, Premier President Xi Jinping and the heads of the Chinese Communist Party saw something in Wuhan and Hubei uh, saw something horrific, a scale of death and destruction and illness that led them to conclude that they should switch off all the non-essential businesses in China almost completely overnight by prolonging the Chinese New Year for several months. And uh, ask yourself, the business the economy of China is something that people have been very, very proud of and it's huge economic growth over the last 40 years, very, very successful manufacturing and service industry. And, and something that the Chinese have done great work to build from, you know, relatively poor economy in the 1940s and 50s. It's grown to be uh, a massive world economy. And they actually switched that off on the third week of January. So ask yourself, what what did the leaders of the Chinese Communist Party see in Wuhan and Hubei on the third week of January that made them switch off most of their non-essential economy? And that, that, that has been in my mind, I, I suppose, since that happened. We've very good independent verification that, that did happen. We've all seen the pictures of the pollution that's disappeared over Wuhan, over China generally. So there's no doubt that the factories have stopped. There's been a WHO uh, independent group of 10 or 14 experts who went in and looked at the public health measures in China. And they're saying, yes, the success of the Chinese approach is true. And they've done contact tracing. They've done self-isolation. They've done social distancing. And they've scaled up their health sector. They've got different counties to different provinces, as they call them, to, to go and help uh, most stricken provinces, staff and nurses and doctors relocated from healthy provinces, if you like, to places where, where the disease is at its worst. And through that, they've come out of this and have, have solved this. So by watching that back in the third week of January, it was clear that something absolutely dramatic had happened in Wuhan. 
And, um, you know, I suppose I was watching that and, and, and could see that and could see the numbers coming out of China. Many, many Irish and British people weren't watching. They're not Chinese watchers, if you like. They're not watching to see where the next epidemic is growing in some other side of the world. So it was only really when the stories and pictures came from Northern Italy and many of our colleagues, um, you know, many of us have, have friends who work in the health sector in Northern Italy and they were sort of pointing out that, um, you know, the health service there is, is really stretched and overwhelmed and, and we were getting first-hand stories of what was really going on. It was only really then with the pictures from from Italy that um, folks started to realise this is a worldwide problem. This is really a pandemic and it's going to affect us. There's no reason in the world to think this isn't going to attack Ireland just as it did Wuhan or Northern Italy or Iran or anywhere else. Uh, remember like four or five weeks ago, the health minister of Iran was wiping his forehead while saying, no, 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 everything's under control. It's all fine. Then the next day we found out, of course, he'd COVID-19. So it, it takes a while for the message to sink in in a widespread way in the public mind but before people are willing to accept a radical change to their social life, their economic life, and, and every other aspect of their, their personal life. So so leading these radical changes um, in, a, in a sort of open, tolerant public democracy is, is very, very challenging. And you, you almost have to have the people on board and ready to follow you before you actually start trying to say we should do this. Um, so it, it's, it's, really, it's really a challenge to our whole democratic, liberal, tolerant, free tradition where we encourage dissent, we encourage uh, people to discuss and, and argue and, and so on. That, that's our political tradition, which I cherish. Uh, but, but trying to lead in a crisis, uh, a rapid response to an external threat, um, you, you can't really jump until the people are willing to follow you. So conversely, then, were you, even though you cherish that um, open democracy, were you, are you kind of heartened when you see people almost calling for stricter um, regimes and, and stricter guidance um, to be given to them? No, I, I think we have to continue our tradition of uh, democratic debate and discussion. My view is that I hope that uh, happens in a cross-party, all-party way, either in uh, subcommittees of, of the Department of Health, as we did over the abortion one, to have all that political discussion in a cross-party way before the decision is made and then have a decision made about, say, whether people coming in from UK tomorrow should spend forcibly 14 days in quarantine before they enter the freedom to walk in Irish land and Irish soil. Uh, those sort of really controversial decisions about people coming into our country and my view should still be open to transparent debate and discussion. In terms of just Ireland for a second, what we have seen so far, about 18,000 tests, about 1,300 cases and seven deaths. From that, what are you expecting um, in the in the coming weeks? It's very difficult to say because it depends how effective the measures that we put in 10 days ago are and how effective the measures that were put in yesterday are. And you, you can't predict uh, the effectiveness of those, we, we just have to watch and see. I'm hoping it will improve. Before those measures started, on the sort of 8th or 10th of March, we were seeing um, the number of cases in Ireland was doubling uh, every 2.1 days. And if you project that forward on exponential growth, that means over 30, over uh, you get 32-fold increase in 10 days and you get a 1,000-fold increase in 21 days. And that's, that's a very rapid escalation. A thousandfold growth in, in 21 days means 21 days from now you might have 200,000 cases, for example. Now, I'm hoping that will not be the case because I'm hoping that the social distancing measures, which were quite radical yesterday, and even the ones from eight or 10 days ago with closing the schools, have actually changed that uh, prediction and improved it. 
So I'm really hoping that uh, the measures from yesterday and the ones of stopping the schools and Patrick's Day in the pubs uh, from, from you know, eight or ten days ago have actually improved our uh, outcomes compared to what they would have been had we done nothing. Kathleen, I'm going to go to you now. Um, as I mentioned in the intro, Kathleen is a journalist with ESPN who had been living in London, but Kathleen, you've returned to Sligo now. But I was wondering what it was like living in the UK. Obviously, you have a dual vision of what's going on in Ireland at the same time. What was it like seeing everything unfold here and being there? Yeah, so it was really strange the whole time being over there and having both those perspectives. Um, obviously, there wasn't really that much of a reaction at all over in England. I remember watching Boris Johnson's first speech and the things he was saying were just completely at odds to everything else I had been hearing. Um, and also with ESPN, because it's such a global company, we had people from all around the world messaging in constantly, talking about what was happening in their own countries. And the English reaction just seemed completely at odds with it. You know, you had Boris Johnson saying, this is the worst public health crisis for a generation, but we're not going to do anything about it. People were still using the tubes every day. You know, nothing really calmed down. People were still going out to pubs. The shops weren't really seeing that much of an effect until much later. And even then, it was only a couple of things that would be missing from shelves. You know, it was the classic toilet roll and pasta that was missing. Um, so it was just really strange to be there and to be getting these calls from home as well saying, are you coming back? What are they doing? Do you think the NHS is prepared for this? Um, and not really being able to answer because you weren't getting any of those answers from the government. Yeah, because you're, you're a sports journalist. So while we were cancelling games and, and talking about a lot about Cheltenham here, everything was just going on as normal. Yeah, like I was supposed to go to Paris to report on France and Ireland. That was cancelled early on. Like we were reporting on games being cancelled across the world as early as like February. And then there was the English government saying, we're not going to cancel large scale events because we don't think it's a worry for a transmission. And even the week of Cheltenham, the only thing that was on for us to actually watch in the office was Cheltenham. And it was just really strange to see these hordes of people and generally quite like an older age group as well, all just like stuffed in together in this one place while the overriding information seemed to be shut down these events, don't hold them. You know, like Premier Leagues were suspended, leagues across Europe have been suspended, the Euros have been delayed. Like, it's absolutely unprecedented what was happening. And yet, in London, everyone was just going about their business as if it was happening somewhere far away and not actually on their doorstep. When did preparation start for you or, or people you know over there to start working from home? So, for me, it was a constant uh, kind of evaluation with my managers in work and they would constantly say if you feel more comfortable working at home you're more than welcome to but again because the atmosphere in London was just one of this is all normal I didn't really take them up on that until Friday a week ago when um, we got an email saying we think it's going to shut down we really encourage you to like work from home and same with most of my friends. I have friends who work in Westminster and they were only let uh, work from home if they were actually asking for it. Most people I know were still working in an office up until a couple of days ago when the actual full lockdown was enforced. So it's really been a very, very late response to like a massive crisis. When did the mood change? Was it only with that official lockdown? 
I think it was because I know I left London Monday a week ago. And when I left, a lot of my friends were saying, that's a bit unusual. You know, do you really think it's serious enough to leave now? And uh, when I said it to, and it was within a couple of days, then another few Irish people started heading home. But everyone else was just continuing on as normal. There was like a bit more worry creeping in. People were starting to kind of, prepare a little bit more you know like bring stuff home from the office my flatmates were bringing home bits of work just in case they were told at the last minute to you know work from home but I know from speaking to people who are still there even the lockdown came as a bit of a shock to some people they were saying god we didn't expect it to be this serious and this hard line because everything up until this point has been really calm and sort of you know we're not going to succumb to this virus we're going to try and do our best to keep everything going as normal. Are they scared now? I think so. I think how heavy the regulations are on what they can do. You know, you can only go out once a day to exercise. You can only, there's only essential um, services open. I think that really hit home to people that, wow, this is bad. Because even there's a lot of questions floating around, you know, if I go out of my house twice a day, is someone going to know? There's like that uncertainty again with how, the government is actually going to enforce those rules. So that in itself is kind of keeping people within their homes. Um, But I definitely think there's been a change in attitude from a lot of the people I've been talking to in the last few days. Yeah, like is there chat about the army being on the streets, for instance? There's a lot from what I've heard from people. There's a lot of joking about it rather than actual with an undertone of seriousness to it because no one knows what's really going to happen. Um, I know I did... When I was initially leaving London, I did notice that there was a few more police around the place. They seemed to be trying to disperse people a little bit more. But since the lockdown has happened, no one I know has actually gone out and seen all that much. So I wouldn't be able to fully say what it's like now. Were you, as an Irish person in London, following Irish guidelines more than you were following what you were being told by the British government and the NHS? Yeah, I was definitely following the Irish guidelines much more than I was the British guidelines. Um, Because all you were getting from the government there was wash your hands, you know, be careful. Whereas at home, there was much more of a try and like limit where you're going, try and limit who you're in contact with. Um, And it just, it seemed like a much calmer response in some ways because you were very clear on what you had to do and why you were doing it whereas with the British government advice you were a bit like "Ooh, this is all a bit haphazard I'm not entirely sure what I should be following how I should be doing it so I just tried to walk more rather than take public transport obviously like kept hygiene standards really high and then eventually started working from home before it was actually announced that people should work from home. And obviously this fed into your decision to come back to Sligo. Yes, definitely. Um, I think I decided very last minute to leave. I decided on the Sunday evening and I flew out the Monday evening after. Um, And most of it was decided because of the advice and the reaction of the Irish government. But also there was a lot of pressure from home to come back because my family were seeing the response that was going on in England and it worried them because they weren't entirely certain like if I was going to be safe if I stayed um so yeah I had a lot of calls from my parents saying we think you should come back we think you will be safer here than you are in London at the moment and what was the airport like the airport was extremely eerie I don't think I've ever been 
in a situation and felt like there was something big happening around me and there was no one in I flew flew out of Gatwick and there was no one in duty free all the people who worked there were just standing around talking to each other I overheard a couple of them saying you know we don't know what's going to happen to our jobs in the next few days should we quit now and try and find something else um and then once you actually got into the kind of heart of the airport there was just people sitting apart some wearing masks some not there wasn't really anyone talking there wasn't that same sort of excitement you get a lot of the time in an airport where people are excited about going away excited about whatever trips they're coming back from um and it was there was absolutely no advice on how to travel safely there was not really a lot of the staff wearing gloves or taking any sort of precautions with hygiene that I could see. Um, there was a couple of people on my flight wearing gloves and masks, the air stewards and stuff. But apart from that, there was just very little to tell that there was a pandemic going on and that maybe we should be taking this a little bit more seriously than we currently are. And when you arrived back to Dublin, were you given any advice after travelling? Yeah, so when I arrived back to Dublin, it was completely different. Um, I think I was offered advice three times um, between leaving the plane and coming out at uh, arrivals. You were given, there was different stands everywhere that you could um, get hand sanitizer. Anyone who was working there seemed to be wearing gloves. Some of them were wearing masks. And there was just a really different atmosphere. It almost felt like people were relieved to get to Ireland and to see those things you know I saw people pointing them out and going oh that's really good to see really glad that they have that um because I think everyone was just so aware that there was absolutely none of that when we were leaving London and are you self-isolating now yeah so I have been in my home for the last seven I think this is the eighth day um and I haven't been in contact with anyone else just because I obviously was still traveling to work I was still I flew over here and so it's just safest but also it's a lot easier to do in rural Ireland where there isn't that many places to go and people to see anyways. What are your hopes or expectations when will you be back to London and and to your job? I don't know and that's kind of part of the scary element of all this Um, it really depends and especially with the way the English government has reacted to this I don't know if Ireland is going to come out of this a lot quicker than they are, if they're going to still be feeling the effects. So while it may be safe to stop isolating here, it might not be safe to go back. At the moment, it's very much just a rolling every week, keep checking in with my managers and seeing how the situation develops. Um, I know initially we had talked about a month, but at this rate, it could be longer. It's just so hard to tell when everything is so up in the air. I think like most most people out there. Thanks so much, Kathleen, for talking to us today. Um, and good luck. And hopefully you'll get back to ESPN and London soon. Thanks, Sinead. Thank you for listening to The Explainer. And a big thank you to Sam, Gronia and Kathleen for their time and work on this episode. If you enjoyed this chat and learned something, we have loads more for you. Check out our back catalogue where you'll find other shows on the coronavirus and much more. This episode of The Explainer was brought to you by executive producer Christine Bowen, producer Aoife Barry and assistant producer and tech operator Nikki Ryan. If you're enjoying the episodes, please leave us a review and rating wherever you listen to your podcasts. And most importantly, share with a friend who you think will enjoy them. Thank you and catch you next time.